0: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Edward Dusenbury, the first violin of the Tocac Quartet, has recently published a new book, Beethoven for a Later Age. He joined me, James Jolly, for a gramophone EFG conversation at the London Review Bookshop to talk about the book and also about his long career with this award-winning quartet. You finished your your music studies in New York at Juilliard School with... Dorothy DeLay, Sorry. one of the great teachers, and I mean, the, her list of, of pupils reads like a kind of who's who of the, of the great soloists. When you finished study there, I mean, did you know at that time whether it was going to be a solo career, an orchestral career, a chamber music career? I mean, ha- what, was you, what was your feeling there? Yeah,
1: I was, I was pretty confused. I was actually in my last year at Juilliard, and she called me into her office, which was a, a, a rare experience. I mean, Dorothy DeLay that last name was very suitable for her because she was always she was, she was always about four hours late on her lesson schedule. So you know, she would, if you had a lesson at four in the afternoon, you'd be lucky if you got it at nine in the evening. So you spent a lot of time waiting for her. And so to be summoned into her office was kind of a big deal. And she, she just asked me, I only had a few mon- months left at Juilliard, and I think she'd been kind of thinking about how to help me. And she said, would I be interested in a quartet? position and I, my first response was but you've never heard me play chamber music that was true but but she had a particular way of teaching where you had these class lessons where each person played and then you all had to talk to each other and kind of and I think she f- for some reason felt I was good in that environment So and she also noticed that I learn pieces rather quickly and <laughs> that was obviously going to be very necessary so at that point was, I hadn't at all considered that I would join a established string quartet. It was an entirely new idea. I perhaps wasn't quite courageous enough to form my own young group or I hadn't found the right people to work with, but then it just seemed like an adventure. You know, I, I went out to Boulder and met the guys, and I think chamber music I'd always associated with having fun, really. I mean, in the, in the family, in my extended family, my cousins all played, my, my grandparents, and we used to get together and have these kind of uproarious family music sessions. And so... Three years at Juilliard had been a somewhat restrictive sort of experience. I spent a lot of time sitting in a practice room wishing I could play the violin better than I did.
0: Was the Juilliard experience, I mean, was that very much geared towards making you a soloist? I mean, was there a sort of end end game?
1: I think, I, I, I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that exactly, but a lot of the violinists who were there, that was definitely their ambition, <laughs> many of them. Uh, I didn't meet many players who were, whose ambition was to play chamber music, necessarily. A delay was simply trying to make me a better player and her approach to I think she felt I needed just to have a more sort of dry approach she felt like I relied too much on being inspired and I remember her saying to me but what are you going to do when you go on stage and you don't feel inspired then what's what's your fallback and the very first time I had a lesson with her she said the thing to me that stayed with me and I'm afraid it's still something to be reminded of every day honey we need to teach you to use your ears which is a, which, which is a pretty nasty thing to have to hear at the age of 22 frankly but in, in some way that's that's when you're playing chamber music that's exactly you think you you may be listening to what's going on around you but when you have three other people who've got complicated things going on and not just in their playing but in their maybe in their personalities you have to you, you always have to listen and be more aware than, than you think
0: well let's let's sort of let's let's take let's take your audition process for granted because I'm sure everyone is going to buy your book and read about it and I can tell you it's a, it's a really beautifully written and, and incredibly engaging part of the book as you as you're drawn into this quartet and accept it but just sort of going back one notch you, if you become a soloist it's all about personality if you go into an orchestra in a way you are one of a dozen ultimately 24 violins so you kind of subsumed into this. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, as a, as a chamber musician, you sort of have to have the best of both worlds. In a way, you have to have the personality yes. as a player, an individual player, but at the same time, you have to fit in to this group of of three other people yeah. who, in your case, have been playing together for many, many years. I mean, was that, was that difficult, sort of adapting to? being part of a quartet, but being a sort of Hungarian quartet with a very specific style.
1: Yeah, that's exactly the crux of, of what was difficult. It was a, it was a double challenge. That, uh, the others were very nice to me because they're, they're, they were 18 years older and yet they made it very clear they wanted someone to come in who was going to be confident, had a strong musical personality, they wanted different ideas, they, they wanted me to structure the rehearsals. They, I like to think of myself as a first violinist, but they did want someone to lead them. And yet, at the same time, I was joining this pre-existing, this very strong uh, musical personality, and obviously, I had to work out how am I how am I going to blend with that group. So it was these two things going on, and and honestly, that it was sort of impossible to do that right away. Uh, I had to just find a way to balance. You know, sometimes I learned something about how to blend, uh, and then on another occasion, I might learn how to project myself on the stage and. I, I felt like there was a lot of play acting going on on stage as I tried to sort of find my own musical personality in the group. And it probably took... Um, I mean, we, we played good concerts, but I, in my own mind it took four or five years probably to... Be, because how you, how,
0: how you, quickly after you joined the quartet were you actually performing? I mean, was there a sort of period where, as it were, you sort of dug in and tried to sort of blend in and then, right, off we're going to go and try it now in public?
1: Uh, I think we had a, a, a live radio show in America which we had to travel for, which was in Spillville, Iowa, where like, Borshak. where Vorjak was. Yes. And so we went there and we played Vorjak American, which was at least one of the few string quartets I did actually know. But that was about 10 days after I joined wow. the quartet. So it wasn't very long. And then we had maybe three weeks of rehearsals, and then we had three or four concerts. So pretty much right away, actually, there were there were rehearsal periods, but concerts right away. Mm-hmm. And, and actually that was good for me because... The, the trouble is, and, and this is still the case, sadly, you can only learn a certain amount in a rehearsal. And uh, whenever we play a new piece now, you um, you, know, you hope to get it to a certain level, and you do get it to a certain level, but then you learn things about pacing and character and how to project yourselves when, when you're on the stage. Uh, you can only learn that in a concert. Mm.
0: Let's let's flip back and, and, and go back to, to Beethoven now and, and, and just re- return to the Opus 18 quartets. These are the, the f- six quartets that were written sort of around the same time as the first symphony. So, you know, Beethoven was sort of spreading his his orchestral wings at the time. They all conform to the pattern that that had been established by Haydn and Mozart, which is basically lively first movement, call to arms, generally a slow second movement, a third movement that is some kind of dance, Mm -hmm. usually a minuet and trio, and then... Finale that is usually a sort of upbeat romp to the end. And I mean, that as a sort of form has stayed pretty constant for a staggering amount of time.
1: That's absolutely right. And he, within that form, of course, he, he, um, he reinvented the dialogue between the instruments. And so you can already see, compared with the Haydn quartets, there's the first violin, although there's sort of flashy passages and sometimes when first violin dominates the the, the ways in which the other instruments interact are, are getting to be more interesting, uh, although that's true also in late Haydn, I don't want to denigrate Haydn, but I think in the Opus 18s he's also poking at the, at the uh, forms, so there is one of them which doesn't have a slow movement that has a little kind of light scherzo, and then some of the dance, the, the minuets become scherzo's that are a little bit more disruptive feeling and they might have a trio section that instead of relaxing go, gets rather stormy and there's there's one where the first violin sort of practically goes up in smoke with difficult passage work so you, you can see him pushing at the boundaries and in the last uh the, the most interesting opus 18 for me the the last one the last movement begins with a very mysterious this malinconious slow introduction that in of itself is not particularly remarkable it's a remarkable bit of writing but what's interesting is the fact that when he seems to throw it off with a with a nice happy uh, allegretto and you think all's right with the world but but the slow music continues to to interfere um, to kind of undermine that character and that's maybe the the real first sign we see of um, how in his pieces there's going to be many disruptive elements and he's going to risk Doing something that may not seem unified because it has so much contrast, and, and try and pull it together anyway.
0: Do you think the audience would have expected this this certain sort of form of a quartet? So actually, when he does something that's not expected, you know, there would be a kind of shock. Wow! You know, he's starting this with a, a, a slow introduction, or
1: and, all, and also the players had a certain expectation. So it's interesting that the, the violinist that I talk about a lot in the book, Ignaz Schuppensich, he was working quite closely with Beethoven, and so. The first piece that Beethoven actually wrote was the third opus 18 but Schuppensich told Beethoven that it maybe was a little bit too intimate and he didn't recommend putting that first in the set so as a result Beethoven, the piece that we now call opus 18 number one Uh, it's a very lively, very virtuosic piece with the the Mm. dramatic outer movements. So that probably conformed more to Schuppensich's sense of what was really Mm. an effective quartet, whereas the third quartet begins very, very quietly with a solo violin line, and that was quite daring.
0: And and, and the quartet at this time, as a a form, was changing in terms of the way it was performed. In other words, it was moving from a, a salon piece... To, I mean, when one gets to the Razumovskis, I mean, they are most certainly music that should be projected and actually listened to, you know, as, as an audience here, you know, in, in this sort of setting, I suppose.
1: Yeah, the, the quartet was was changing all the time. I mean, even with Haydn, he was starting to think about public concert halls. And Schuppensich had his own concert series and was a violinist who was definitely trying to get away from private patronage and, and that was pretty difficult for him because in fact he still was very reliant on the Viennese aristocrats as was Beethoven. So you see this funny mixture of things and Count mm-hmm. Razumovsky who commissioned the Razumovsky quartets as we, as we call them lived in a palace and in some ways he was very <coughs> forward-thinking in the sense that he gave a quartet with Schuppenstick as the first violin a residency at his palace and that gave them the chance to really rehearse. And we can maybe think of that group as, as one of the first professional string quartets. And yet, at the same time, that type of patronage was also a little conservative because he primarily probably imagined these players playing in his palace rather than in public concerts. But at that point, Razumovsky was also funding public concerts. So there was this kind of interesting mix that these quartets would have had to work in a number of different spaces you know kind of quite public but also sometimes quite private mm-hmm.
0: I mean do you th- do you think the, the size of concert halls has has I wouldn't say distorted but affected to an extent the music because you know if you perform in the festival hall or Carnegie Hall I mean this music was never ever written for a place like that I mean does that is does that cause you problems of projection yeah. because it's an enormous phase
1: it does, and, and, and we've had a few comical examples of that. It was once when we had to play in the Sydney Opera House, and uh, it's a ridiculous place for a quartet concert. And we were, we were reassured by the management that our sounds would be naturally enhanced. <laughs> Not amplified, you understand, just naturally enhanced. And that was very strange because we could sort of hear some kind of string quartet over there, uh, which didn't seem to bear much relation. And then, and then the air conditioning blew my music shut right at the end of <laughs> Opus one thirty. So it was, it was a difficult experience. Um, and do yeah.
0: you think? Do you, I mean, do, do you think it's changed?
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: The way certain quartets, I mean, I can think of quartets without naming any, who have an enormous sound. Uh, and that presumably is because of the places they're expected to to play in. This sort of turbocharge. I think that's true. I protect. think it's
1: also it's partly a matter of musical priorities. Yeah. You know. So when I first played with the Tokach guys, they were, they, their priority was more about warmth of sound, and the instruments that they played at that time were very silky, uh, and they didn't project so much. And so maybe we've tried. We've probably had to move a little bit more in that direction of, of a sound that can project in a big hall. And, and, and
0: presumably, as you become better known, and you're know, <laughs> you kind of rising up the, the sort of string quartet tree, I mean, you, you, know, you, you have to perform in bigger halls, or you get yeah. invited to form in bigger
1: halls. You do, and some of them are very good acoustics. And then when you, when you record, when you have to go to, and part of the book is about what it's like to do a recording session, then you've got microphones right next to you. And just like an actor who has to change from how they project in a theatre to how they do when they're being filmed on on camera, that's a very similar process for
0: us. I mean, how did you find the time to write this book? How did it fit into your performing life?
1: Well, with difficulty. (laughs) But uh, I've I've never... I mean, I like the places that we go to, but I I really don't like travelling, and especially I don't like long plane journeys. And I I suddenly found that I loved writing on airplanes. And I could completely block out what was going on around me. And what had seemed like six hours of boredom and, you know, getting tired, I, I, I could spend the time writing. So I, I wrote <coughs> a lot of this, actually, when I was on the road, in airports, in planes. Uh, I had to do some of the more kind of serious research I obviously had to do when I was at home in Colorado.
0: And as a, as a performing group, how far ahead are you working? I mean, how far are concerts booked Two years, three. Years? Um, well, I think that
1: at the moment we we. I think we're, we'll be playing at the Edinburgh Festival in August 2018. So that's a little bit extreme. But and do you know what you'll be playing? Uh, yes, I think we do. So that's that's maybe that's probably at the sort of limit of how far out we are. But sort of in a range of you know mm-hmm. two years something
0: like that. And and, and the Beethoven. I mean, we, we haven't actually talked about the Beethoven quartets sort of as a as a group. I mean, we, we were saying before we started that it is incredible. We're nearly 200 years. After the death of Beethoven, yet these sixteen quartets still i mean they are like the himalayas i mean they 're they're, they're yeah. there they will n- they have never been bettered. No. I mean what they have to say is extraordinary and and, and is unbeatable really i mean
1: yeah. how, how did and, that happen i, I think yeah it, it's it, it's magic, and the thing I love the most about them is that they still elicit such strong reactions from audience members so I mentioned this in the book because it's one of my favourite reactions to a, a quartet. After that Thanksgiving movement, which is this wonderful 15 minutes of this sort of ethereal, transcendent music, there's this, this sort of rude little march that comes out of nowhere. And, you know, I've always enjoyed that juxtaposition very much, but never more so than when a concert promoter came backstage after we played it in Kansas City and she said, I hate that awful little march. <laughs> why did he have to ruin everything with that march? <laughs> and, uh, and I wish Beethoven had been there, because I think he would have been immensely satisfied with that reaction. <laughs> and I feel, I feel like he's always challenging our preconceptions and our expectations, and I think that's, that's really why the music is still so engaging, both mm. for performers mm. and audiences.
0: And I mean, the, the thing we haven't touched on yet, that s- strikes me as the most extraordinary thing, is that you know, Beethoven lost his hearing I mean, very, very early on really, and, and by the time we get to the, the, the late quartets, I mean, he had no hearing at all. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, th- I think that the, you, can, you can kind of chart the history of his uh, hearing through the quartets, because it was while he was working on the Opus 18s that he first mm. wrote to various friends, and, and very privately because he was terrified that people would find out and that it would ruin his, his chances of, of having a musical career. Uh, So you see that with the Opus 18s, and I think it's very touching that those pieces create their own kind of easy and refined dialogues, the sort of conversations that he was already not being able to have himself, those sort of spontaneous, witty interactions. And then by the time he wrote the Rasmowski Quartets, they come, like many of the great middle pieces, the Eroica Symphony, um, they they come out of that period of great despair when he felt very suicidal and, and... wrote this, this, this testament to his brothers saying that the, the only reason really for him to stay alive was because he felt he still had to compose. And the last movement of Razumovsky III, above one of the sketches for it, he, he wrote this very defiant statement, let your deafness no longer be a secret. And that was a, a, a big step for him, someone who had previously been terrified. The reality was that, of course, he, he went very much up and down with his feelings of, of despair about that. And I, I think that you, what you hear in the late quartets, of course, there's no way of telling how his deafness affected what he wrote. I completely don't buy into the idea that when, when you hear something rather strange or dissonant or an unusual effect, sometimes people say, well, if, if he could have heard, he wouldn't have written that. I don't, I don't believe that for a second. I think it's just that the lack of hearing perhaps gave him a, a more crystallised sort of ideal vision of what he wanted to do, it probably made him more uncompromising and, and, and more willing to to reach out to something ideal that he, that he couldn 't hear himself
0: mm-hmm. i mean one, one thing that 's striking and I mean you you, know, you have a, a, an extraordinary grasp of the you know the whole quartet repertoire is that as a genre that the quartet is almost the place where composers confide. You know, if one thinks of say the Shostakovich quartets, you played number three last night. Yeah. But you know, in, 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 for Shostakovich, it's almost like you know the symphonies are what I'm putting out there, but the string quartets are what I'm keep, keeping for myself, and they're really you know my innermost thoughts and, and things I actually I don't really want to share in any other way except in the abstract form of music.
1: Yeah, it's it's amazing the way that's worked, and, and I suppose it's because the quartet sort of distills things down to the the kind of minimum of what you need for voices and. Of course, Beethoven, even Haydn, they set the bar so high that composers who take on writing a quartet, I think they sort of feel this pressure to be radical and experimental uh, and and also to really go deep inside themselves. Sometimes I think that's a little bit of a disadvantage. I mean, I I would advise composers who are coming to string quartets for the first time not to aim too high, (laughs) you know, and just let that kind of complexity uh, evolve. I mean, Brahms, famously, I think he ripped up 11 or 12 quartets before he even allowed one to be published because he was so daunted (laughs) by Hmm. the example.
0: Have we moved sufficiently far away for that not to be a kind of issue? Because, I mean, throughout the 19th century, people were dominated by what Beethoven did, but, I mean, particularly the string quartet.
1: Yeah, I I think you do feel it with composers, and, and you also feel this... Their, their sense that they should try and mix the private with the public, and actually the piece we're playing tomorrow night is, is nice in that respect, that it has rather intimate dialogue in it that could you know, come from an Opus 18 quartet and then it has much bigger moments in it that, that come from the Razumovsky. So I think any, any quartet composer has to still be in touch with that music, I mm-hmm. think.
0: And, and do you find that as a genre that, that, that is still very much something that composers like to write for? I mean, does, is it very much a living genre?
1: I think it is. I mean, there's there's a lot of quartets cool being written. If I'm a little bit um, crit- critical of some of the works that are written, sometimes I feel composers. Sometimes I play a piece and I think, well, actually, that could have been written for piano, or it could have been written for woodwind quintet. And in that case, no, the composer hasn't quite. Grasp the genre yet but that may be just a matter of needing to try it again.
0: <laughs> the role of recording in your, your life, you've, you've recorded all the Beethoven quartets, Gramophone has uh, given you uh, awards yes. for them, before you joined the group they did a various, uh, quite a bit of, sort of Eastern European music, mm. and now you're with uh, Hyperion, again actually Eastern European music, we've had sort of Janacek and, and so forth, do you try to do a recording
1: once a year, tour it, how does that work? We do. It's probably frustrating for classical record companies. I don't know what other people do, but we do exactly the opposite of many pop musicians. We work very, very hard on pieces, and we program them in concerts. And then when we're ready, we go into the recording studio. And after we've done that, we don't want to see that music again for a couple of years. So forget about CD promotional tours. It's not going to happen. And so, so that's, we do plan a CD once every year. And partly it's because it's a very different sort of musical work. And uh, I think with the Beethoven quartets, those recordings... That was a bit of an exception, because you're always playing Beethoven, so we have continued to play the quartets after recording them, obviously. And for me, it was, it was a great liberation to have actually recorded them and put them out, because then you can kind of look at it. It also coincided with our changing of... Our viola player, Jerry, joined us then. And I think I, I felt a certain freedom, especially in the late quartets. Like, OK, we've done it this way, but, but what else could we do with it? And, and that music's so full of possibilities... I think a recording session, maybe that's the the greatest thing about it, is that you discover new possibilities when you have the microphone so close to you and you don't have to worry about projecting into a bigger space. Mm. And it must also be
0: a rare occasion where a fifth person is involved in the process, but actually not in any kind of practical way. They're a sort of extra pair of ears, but a very sensitive pair of ears. Yeah, we're very
1: lucky. We work with this well-known producer, Andrew Keener, who has got a razor-sharp set of ears and is also a you know, fantastic psychologist dealing with uh, neurotic musicians and our uh, fragile egos. Um, <coughs> and, and, and I tried to ca- in my book, I try to capture a few of his great phrases, um, particularly to me. He'll, he said something to me like, um, Ed, the, the way that A-natural floats through the air, when it reaches here, it's a little bit flat. <laughs> To which I'll reply, well, when it left here, it was perfectly fine. <laughs> so, so I mean, that's just a, one example of his infinite good tact. Um, but but it, but it really is, actually, it's like, it's, it's like recording a quintet, because, I mean, you put your trust, absolute trust, in a producer. I mean, that's what's great about him, is that you mm. can put your trust in him.
0: I mean, presumably just getting the sound... Is it, I mean, that's, you know, before you've even, even actually recorded a note, I mean, that must be... You know, people don't sort of realise that actually just to catch the sound that you think you make or yes. would like to think you make, I mean, that's terribly important.
1: And, and very nerve-wracking. And, and so there's actually a sixth person there, the sound engineer, in this case, Simon Eden. And in preparing for the book, I, I interviewed him about what he felt his role was as a sound engineer. And actually, he was... I mean, he's a very modest man. But I, I was I was interested because he said... You can set up the microphones, obviously there's, a, there's a, skill, a tremendous skill to that, but what happens is that you go back and you listen to your sound, and usually you're surprised in some way, sometimes a little unpleasantly surprised. I mean, during the Beethoven recordings, I, was, I, I often wanted to make a different sound from what I was hearing. And you realise that you've got very good equipment, you've got a very good sound engineer, it's just up to you. You've just got to make the adjustments. And so I think he feels that the, what makes a really good recording Yes, you can set the parameters. You can put good microphones up, but there are certain musicians who will, in response to what they listen to, they'll go and make changes, and that's where you get a great recording. There are others who are un- unable to do that for whatever reasons, and then and then it will be a less good result. Mm.
0: <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much. Thanks for thank you.
1: A- thank you, James.
0: And Edward Dusenbury's new book, Beethoven for Later Age, is published by Faber. That EFG gramophone conversation took place at the London Review Bookshop.